We've made it to episode four of The Abnormal Psychologist, and I still have no idea what I'm doing. Um, in today's episode, I'm going to briefly go over some of the more common types of therapy, and we won't really get specific in this episode. Instead, we'll talk about therapeutic paradigms, or sort of broad schools of thought around therapy. And in doing so, we'll cover topics such as weird coronavirus dreams, breathing through a straw to treat anxiety, and my favorite topic, snakes. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to remind folks that the Harwood Center, uh, which is a nonprofit that offers therapeutic services for youths um, with developmental disabilities in the Memphis area, is having their virtual 5K coming up on Labor Day weekend. It's called the Harwood Dash for Disabilities, and you can put that name into any search engine, Harwood Dash for Disabilities, and the event should pop up. Also, for a good cause on Labor Day uh, weekend is the Youth Village's 10-miler. Um, I'm planning on doing both. Uh, so if I disappear after Labor Day, you know what probably happened. So let's talk about therapy. Um, in upcoming episodes, when I discuss a specific disorder, again, we're going to have episodes dedicated to specific disorders. I'll talk about treatment options for each disorder. So I was hoping with today's episode to give you some of the basic vocabulary that many psychologists and psychiatrists use when discussing talk therapies. And we'll be able to apply this vocabulary more specifically for each disorder that we talk about. And since we're talking about therapy, I want to clarify that I am a psychologist, but I'm not your psychologist. So none of the things that I say constitute having a therapeutic relationship with you. All right, so I got that out of the way. And I want to start with a rhetorical question. What do you think about when you think of psychotherapy? Take a few seconds to think about this. And if you're like many people in the Western world, you probably picture some sort of therapy couch and some older white dude with glasses and a beard and a German accent. And this is interesting as I'm pretty young for a psychologist and there's some evidence that the packaging of the therapy, sort of how it looks, might play into its effectiveness or at least its perceived effectiveness. For example, if you're expecting, if you come to therapy and you're expecting the older, wise looking German guy and you get a curly headed kid that looks uh, like he could be a college student, the young person and the older German person could say the exact same things and do the exact same therapy, but you might think the older guy is more effective because that's what you expect out of psychotherapy. Um, it's sort of like the packaging of Alka-Seltzer. Imagine drinking an Alka-Seltzer without the fizz and then drinking it with the fizz. Uh, while the fizz does absolutely nothing therapeutically for you, you probably would rate the version with the fizz as being more effective than the version without it. So the German accented therapist would be the fizzy Alka-Seltzer in that example. And I guess I would be the non-fizzy Alka-Seltzer. Uh, back to that strange German person. The first school or paradigm of therapy that we're going to talk about is psychodynamic paradigm. Uh, you'll also hear this called psychoanalytic theory. Uh, and some people will argue that there are differences between the two, psychoanalytic and psychodynamic. Uh, for our purposes, I'm just going to treat them as the same. Uh, and when we talk about psychodynamic therapy, uh, Sigmund Freud probably comes to mind. And if you've never taken a psychology course before, you still probably have heard the name Freud. Many people don't realize that Freud has fallen out of favor for most uh, of contemporary psychology. Uh, so if you mention Freud to a psychologist or psychiatrist, there is a high likelihood that you'll get scoffed at or being scoffed at means. Uh, it doesn't sound very COVID-19 friendly, being scoffed at. 
Anyways, Freud is going to be the real uh, first central figure in psychological therapy. Now, the science of psychology had been going on for decades before Sigmund Freud. Uh, we had William Wundt. William Wundt. I don't know about my uh, German accent, but I do know that there's this awesome meme that's out there uh, referencing the Little John song that says, Turn down for Wundt. Um, but he's known as the father of experimental psychology. And the term father of experimental psychology, talk about Oedipal and electrical complex with that sort of thing, right? Daddy issues, right? Um, anyway, so Vont was around before Freud, but Freud is really the father of psychological therapy, whereas Vont is associated more with psychological science. Uh, maybe uh, we could do a, a future episode dedicated entirely to Freud. That would be kind of fun. Uh, but for this podcast, I just wanted to focus on psychoanalytic therapy. If you go to a psychoanalytic therapist, and there are still uh, a few around, especially in the Northeastern and Western United States, uh, the goal of therapy will likely be to treat your presenting problem by tapping into your unconscious mind. Now, tapping into the unconscious mind can be difficult because we have this ethereal, ethereal, I don't even know how you pronounce that, a thing called an ego that tries to protect the unconscious. Uh, our unconscious probably contains a lot of inappropriate things, and our ego tries to cover these up and make them socially appropriate. So tapping into the unconscious can reveal our deepest and darkest secrets. Uh, luckily, though, according to psychodynamic theorists, there are certain ways we can trick and bypass the ego to uh, access the unconscious. Uh, one of these methods is through dream interpretation, uh, when we're asleep, our egos are sort of asleep, and that allows us to access the unconscious. Uh, Freud famously referred to dreams as being the royal road to the unconscious. So a psychodynamic therapist might ask you to keep a dream journal or a dream log. Dreams have come up in the last few months uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, many people are reporting strange, vivid dreams uh, during the pandemic. I've had some strange ones lately. Um, and it seems like many of these dreams are anxiety-driven, and they also have themes of contamination, like that you've been infected or have opened yourself up to infection through a slip-up in personal protective equipment or something like that. Um, it'll be interesting, I think, in the next few years to see what sort of research comes out of this. When a psychoanalyst is interpreting a dream, they look at two things, manifest content and latent content. Manifest content is the actual literal things you're dreaming about, whereas latent content is the hidden sort of symbolic meaning behind those literal things. So let's take an example of a dream. Uh, people have been watching a lot of television lately with the pandemic. So let's say I had a dream that I was sitting on the couch watching Netflix. Um, as I was watching, my couch started to grow and I started shrinking, and eventually I was swallowed up by the couch cushions into the darkness where there's, what, loose change, hard, stale french fries, all that stuff that lives in the bottom of the couch. Uh, the manifest content would be me, the couch, Netflix, loose change, stale, crunchy french fries. Uh, well, all that stuff is fine and good. The latent content is what is interesting to a psychodynamic therapist. They might interpret this dream as me wanting to shrink back into the womb due to the anxiety of the pandemic, right? I'm becoming smaller like an infant and wanting to return into a dark, soft, comforting place like the womb. And much of psychoanalysis will circle back to this birthing experience. Uh, Freud said that birth was your first trauma in life. Most babies don't come out of the womb smiling and giggling, right? They're crying. They're covered in gunk. They're born into, as William James said, a world of blooming, buzzing confusion. 
So we actually have a therapy out there that purports to treat birth trauma and it's called rebirthing therapy. Uh, you might be covered in pillows or by a weighted blanket or with jello to simulate the womb. And then you can emerge and experience birth again. Uh, but this time it could be happy. Uh, you could have people cheering for you or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, this therapy is not effective and can be dangerous. Uh, a 10-year-old girl suffocated to death during one of these sessions, and it's banned in several states, uh, Colorado being one of them, I think one of the Carolinas being the other. And sticking with the psychoanalytic paradigm, there are other ways that we can trick the ego into letting us access the unconscious. Uh, one is through free association. Free association is where you say the first thing that comes to mind without any censorship. Uh, it's sort of like freestyle rapping, but with your thoughts. Uh, drinking alcohol likely tames your ego a little bit. Uh, it lets your ego guard down. So you hear the phrase, in wine, truth, in vino, veritas. Uh, the point is for your ego not to get involved. So in free association, if I ask you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I say something like um, hot and sweaty, your mind might go to sex. True free association, you tell me all the dirty and lurid details that come through your mind when I say hot and sweaty. But your ego probably didn't want you to be judged by this stuff, so you might have hesitated a second uh, if we were talking in person, and this hesitation is a sign that your ego is getting involved, uh, that you might be employing what Freud called a uh, defense mechanism. Uh, and you might tell me you were thinking about working out at the gym or mowing the grass in July heat or something like that. Uh, and maybe we could have a future episode on Freudian defense mechanisms. Uh, there's more than a dozen of them. Uh, so this was an oversimplistic view of psychoanalysis. Uh, there are many different things that we didn't cover, like transference and countertransference and dozens of other defense mechanisms. Uh, but the goal is to access the unconscious with the aid of a therapist. Now, one of the problems with this is that therapy may never really end. Uh, people employ psychoanalytic therapists for decades. Uh, your dreams don't stop coming, right? Uh, so what's insurance to do about this sort of therapy? They can't bill without end. Um, other therapies are going to try to fix things up in like a dozen or 15 sessions. And psychodynamic therapy can be interminable. Uh, let's switch gears to a second paradigm, which is behaviorism. Remember in the last episode when we were talking about what makes a behavior abnormal? Um, some people th said it was thoughts, and some people said it was behaviors, and other people said it was biological causes. Um, and well, if those are the causes of abnormal behavior, then we will have the same sort of divisions when we talk about treatment. So we'll see behaviorist therapies, uh, which will focus on observable actions. And we'll see cognitive therapies, which will focus on thoughts. Uh, let's start with behavioral therapies. Behavioral therapies arose in the early and mid 20th century. Uh, many psychologists didn't like the unconscious, largely unmeasurable psychobabble mumbo jumbo of psychodynamicism. Uh, B.F. Skinner is probably one of the most famous behaviorists. He was the pioneer of operant conditioning. He famously said that we couldn't really know what was going on in the black box of the mind. Uh, the black box of the mind. Uh, interesting uh, um, analogy. Uh, behavioral therapies are going to focus on treating undesirable behaviors through classical, which we call Pavlovian conditioning, or through Skinner's operant conditioning. Instead of looking at birth trauma or interpreting dreams, Behaviorists are going to be pragmatic in their approach. Uh, they might look at the ABCs of behaviors, the antecedents, behaviors, and consequences uh, that can be observed. And we call this the three-term contingency model. For example, 
Um, I slept in this morning. Uh, I didn't want to get out of bed. A psychodynamic therapist might say that I didn't want to get out of bed because I wanted to crawl under the covers and return to a dark, warm, womb-like environment. A behaviorist would use the three-term contingency model, and they would look at the actual observable behavior of me sleeping in bed. Uh, and they would look at the antecedents, what came before this behavior, and the consequences, what came after. Uh, the antecedent of my behavior might be that I drank coffee yesterday afternoon. I stayed up later than I should have. I was anxious, and I woke up several times during the night, and I had to get up to let the dogs outside twice during the middle of the night. What a pain, right? Um, in analyzing the actual behavior of sleeping, I'm pursuing a pleasurable activity. I'm underneath comfort, uh, comfortable sheets. Um, I'm in the dark and in the quiet, in the air conditioning. Uh, the consequence is that I feel well rested for the day. Win-win, right? Um, I might also be avoiding something. Uh, if I wake up, I have to start my work. Uh, waking up early only brings about an earlier start to the workday. So in treating this undesirable behavior of sleeping in, uh, behavioral therapists might tweak the antecedents. They might have me not drink caffeine after 3 p.m. They might have me go to bed by 9 p.m. Uh, and they might have the dogs, my dogs, sleep outside of the bedroom. And they might also tweak the actual behavior. They might make an aversive sounding alarm clock go off in the morning so that staying in bed isn't pleasurable. They might have an automatic thermostat adjust the bedroom temperature to 80 degrees so that staying in bed isn't comfortable. Uh, they might also tweak the consequences. Since I might not be waking up uh, to avoid starting work, um, which in uh, operant conditioning lingo, that's avoidance and that's called negative reinforcement. Um, I'm increasing the behavior of sleeping in by avoiding or taking away the undesirable experience of working. So a behavioral therapist might try to fix that through me waking up to a more pleasurable experience. They might add positive reinforcement in. They might have Chick-fil-A uh, chicken and biscuit sandwiches in the fridge for me to eat for breakfast. They might have coffee automatically made. They might have me waking up to music that I like, that sort of thing. Behavioral therapy is also going to treat anxiety disorders, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Um, and they'll do that through exposure therapies. The basic premise of exposure therapies is that the more used to something, the more familiar you get with something, the less your anxious response will be. Let's say that I have a phobia of snakes, and I actually don't like snakes, but if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I have a lot of snake pictures from fishing and from being outdoors. Um, as my own exposure therapy for my fear of snakes, I think about two years ago, I joined a snake identification book on Facebook because knowledge is power, right? So now I know all of the snakes that live in Memphis, and I even know their Latin names. It's like uh, saying something like uh, Crotus horridus, which is a timber rattlesnake. Uh, that gives you power over it. Crotus horridus also sounds like a Harry Potter spell or something, right? Um, but back to exposure, we have in vivo exposure, which is real life exposure. Uh, this might uh, involve going out in nature, finding a snake, and then holding it. Uh, we also have in vitro exposure. Uh, in vitro means um, in glass in Latin, like in vitro fertilization. Uh, so instead of real life exposure to snakes, I might take some time to think about a snake, to envision one hissing and crawling and striking as sort of mental exposure. And sort of on the borderline between in vivo and in vitro exposure, we have interoceptive exposure. And this involves triggering bodily responses to anxiety and panic as exposure techniques. 
Uh, I'm reading a book right now on the therapeutic effects of breathing. It's called Breath, the New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. And breathing is associated with anxious response. Uh, you can try holding your breath for 30 seconds. Uh, if you do this, towards the end of the 30 seconds, you probably start to have an anxious response. You start to panic without oxygen. Uh, it's been found that many people with anxiety disorders overbreathe. They breathe too quickly and too often. And we can simulate anxiety by taking away your breath, by you holding your breath. Uh, you might hear this called conscious apnea. Or by you breathing carbon dioxide. You could be taking puffs of 30 for, like 35% carbon dioxide, I think is the usual uh, concentration. And that can induce a panic attack. 35% um, carbon dioxide was also used in the past to treat schizophrenia. Um, breathing through, through a straw uh, might also have that same effect, especially like one of those little tiny coffee stir straws. Uh, this is interoceptive exposure. Uh, we can simulate an internal sensation through certain exercises and practice our coping responses with them. Uh, so exposure can take on many forms. Uh, let's go back to that fear of snakes. Uh, we could go find 100 snakes right now and put you in a bathtub with them and have them crawl all over you and let you sort out your fear. Uh, this sort of all-at-once exposure is called flooding. Uh, and flooding was advocated by a behavioral psychologist named Thomas Stamfel. Um, you might also hear this called implosion therapy. And this can be effective, but it's not done very often anymore. This can be traumatic and it might not be ethical. And we don't want to replace your phobia with PTSD. Uh, an alternative to flooding is systematic desensitization, which is uh, also called gradual exposure. Instead of throwing you in a bathtub full of snakes all at once, uh, we might have you come up with a fear hierarchy, which would involve you ranking certain experiences from least to most terrifying. So you might say that looking at a picture of a snake is a one on the terrifying uh, scale and watching a video is a three and going to the herpetarium at the zoo to see a snake is a five. And then having one crawl on you as a 10, that gives you a super anxious response. In a very structured way, a therapist will expose you to these experiences and teach you coping mechanisms along the way. And you'll work your way up the fear hierarchy until you're actually touching a snake. Uh, so that's behavioral therapy in a nutshell. Um, let's talk about cognitive therapy now. Cognitive therapy is going to try and fix your disordered thoughts. Uh, we have many automatic negative thoughts. We call them ants and kids. Uh, and there are sort of cute exercises where you try to squish the ants. So an automatic negative thought is where you think of something and you have this automatic negative thought come into your mind. So I might say calculus and you think of death, failure, uh, something negative immediately. Uh, this sort of brings to mind with me uh, free association with Freud, right? Um, or we might have cognitive distortions where we have thoughts that are in error uh, that blow things out of proportion. So let's say you're in college and you fail your first quiz of the semester. One type of cognitive distortion is catastrophizing, where you make something out to be a disaster. So your mind goes almost immediately from failing a quiz to receiving a bad grade for the semester to having a tank GPA that causes you to lose your scholarship to dropping out of school to not being able to find a job to being broke to living on a street corner. Uh, you see the snowballing effect there that's catastrophizing. And there are lots of cognitive distortions, uh, just like there are lots of Freudian defense mechanisms. And we could spend a whole episode on cognitive distortions. Another cognitive distortion is that you should always be doing something. Uh, you feel guilty about uh, taking free time for yourself. 
Anytime you're idle or not doing something, maybe vegging on the couch, you start thinking about all the things you should be doing. Uh, the psychologist Albert Ellis had some uh, witty terms related to this. He called it masturbation and saying that you should stop shooting on yourself. So cognitive therapy is going to attempt to fix your thoughts. Uh, oftentimes you'll hear this called cognitive restructuring. So let's say you're like many people that see the appeal of behavioral therapy and see the appeal of cognitive therapy and you don't want to choose. Uh, well, lucky for you, just like how we had the biopsychosocial model of disease, uh, we have the cognitive behavioral model of therapy. Uh, and that's sort of where we get the, the best of both worlds. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is the most popular and scientifically supported therapy at present. Odds are, if you go to a psychologist or a counselor, they'll be practicing CBT. And CBT is a huge, broad term. Uh, so much so that you can see one therapist practicing CBT and another therapist practicing CBT, and you'll think there's no way these people are doing the same type of therapy. Um, but all CBT recognizes that thoughts, behaviors, and emotions are important and that they impact one another. And CBT is going to focus on a presenting problem. Uh, whereas psychodynamic therapy might extend out forever, the average number of CBT sessions is 16. So you and the therapist will pick an issue to work on, and you might do this sort of like a science experiment, where you manipulate different variables and see what works. CBT is also data-driven, so you're continually measuring what you're changing to see if there are positive in, uh, effects or impacts. Um, the scientific process that you engage in with your therapist is known as collaborative empiricism. Another core feature of CBT is Socratic dialogue, after Socrates. <laughs> Uh, most practitioners of CBT are, they're not going to be like Dr. Phil and be like super directive to their clients saying you do this and you do that and you definitely don't do that. Instead, they're going to have this annoying habit of asking you questions. So instead of saying that's a bad idea, don't do it, a therapist might ask, how do you think that will work out for you? <clears throat> and this is probably where we get the annoying cliche question from therapy of how does that make you feel? I hate that question. Uh, another feature of CBT is homework. So if you're working with a therapist for only one hour a week, um, it's not a lot of time to achieve change. Uh, most of the change, most of the work, um, is going to come in the 167, I think. If there's 168 hours a week, and if you're doing therapy one hour a week, 167 hours per week that you're not in therapy. Uh, so homework is involved. And my subspecialty in graduate school um, was CBT. So I probably have a bias towards it, and I acknowledge that. Um, we'll brush on different members of the CBT family in future episodes, like acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, among others. Uh, finally, though, all of this therapeutic talk might leave you wondering uh, what the most effective form of therapy is. And this is hotly debated. Uh, CBT, since it uses data as part of the treatment process, probably has the most effectiveness research to rely on. Uh, psychodynamic theory, on the other hand, which doesn't lend itself to hypothesis testing very readily, uh, doesn't fare as much when it's put under the empirical microscope. Uh, there's a concept in psychotherapy research called the dodo bird hypothesis. And this comes from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, which admittedly I've never read. Uh, but apparently there's a scene where there's a foot race between animals and they get to the finish line and no matter what order the animals finished in, the dodo bird gives everyone a prize. Uh, sort of like Oprah. You get a prize and you get a prize and you get a prize. Uh, 
And the dodo bird hypothesis in psychotherapy says um, that no matter what type of therapy you're practicing, uh, that doesn't really matter that much. It's more how you practice. So some research says that only like the type of therapy that you practice only accounts for about 1% of differences in therapeutic outcome. So if it's not the type of therapy that makes the therapy effective, what is it? Um, so there are these things called common factors that might explain effectiveness. I call these sort of the ooey-gooey factors of therapy. Uh, you need a trusting, solid relationship with a therapist. Uh, if you trust a therapist, we call this a therapeutic alliance. It's again, sort of ooey-gooey because it's talking about soft skills and relationship stuff. Um, you need a therapist that's genuine and understanding. Um, these are some of the common factors. You need one that's knowledgeable too. Um, despite common factors, we do know that some therapists are more effective than others. Uh, there's certain therapists who have awful treatment outcomes. Um, we're actually more likely to get worse by seeing them than to get better. And we have others out there that have stellar outcomes. Uh, sometimes we refer to them as super shrinks. Uh, there is still so much research to be done on the effectiveness of psychotherapy. Uh, but for every disorder that we'll talk about in future episodes, I'll try to tell you what research indicates as the most effective form of treatment. Anyways, that draws a close to today's episode. Uh, nothing yet in the mailbag. Be sure to send your mailbag questions to C-T-A-Y-L-O. 41 at cbu.edu. Until next time, stay well and take care.